You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. Good evening, everybody. You know, I've been telling people wherever I've been, I've been in Philadelphia since I saw you last, and I was telling people up there, you know, I belong to this wonderful Southern Baptist Church down in Birmingham, and guess what we're studying on Wednesday night? The Reformation! They couldn't believe it. But it's not just the Reformation. Oh, you have a whole series here, right? And next week, Dr. Westmoreland's going to come and tell you whether to vote for the idiot or the crook, right? Two weeks from now. I don't have any wisdom on that question. But anyway, it's wonderful that this is a congregation that loves to study and learn, and you're here as evidence of that. I think we have more people here tonight than we did last week. I can't wait until two weeks from now when Andy gets here. It'll be packed out. Well, anyway, this is part two of my two-part series on the Reformation. Last week was mostly about Martin Luther. Those of you who were here will know that and remember that. I'm not going to repeat myself too much tonight. What I want to do tonight is to sort of step back and put the Reformation in a broader perspective and then end up by talking about maybe some lessons we can still learn today from the Reformers. And then, Jacob, I hope we can leave lots of time for Q&A. I don't think I left enough time last week. People had lots of questions. So if you have a question, whether it's anything I touch on or not, doesn't matter. You can ask it and we can see where there's any wisdom to be found. So uh, a few years ago, I learned a new word. I like new words. You know, when I was a little kid, I used to learn a new word every day. I haven't done that in a while. But anyway, I learned a brand new word. Now, some of you will know this word, I'm sure. Those of you who are in the field of science and ecology and all of that, environmental studies, you probably know this word. It was new to me. The word is ecotone, E-C-O-T-O-N-E, ecotone. You know what an ecotone is? An ecotone is where two or more ecosystems merge together, where they coalesce. For example, uh, the Mississippi River flowing down into the Gulf of Mexico. That's an ecotone where the river enters the Gulf. Two different ecosystems coming together. Or if you're flying out west, as I sometimes do, and you go across the plains, the cornfields of Kansas and Nebraska, it seems it'll go forever, even an airplane. And then all of a sudden you look out, there are the Rocky Mountains just coming up out of nowhere where the mountains meet the plains. That's an ecotone. Well, if I can extrapolate from the field of ecology to history, which is something I know a little more about, then I'd like to say that not only is uh, ecotone a term for biology and ecology, but it's also a term for history. It's where two ages merge together, where two different currents of civilization and life come together, coalesce. Uh, and, uh, for example, if you go back in, in the history of the church to the, to the days of the early church, uh, the time of the persecutions is over, and, and what we call classical antiquity, the ancient church, the early church is coming to an end, and then there are all of these barbarian invasions that come down into Italy, and Rome is burned in 476 and all of that. That's an ecotone. The fall of one world, the rise of another. Now, the Reformation also took place in an ecotonic moment where it was the end of one world and the beginning of another, where two great systems of civilization, in a way, merged together and clashed with one another. It was the end of the medieval world, the Middle Ages, and the beginning of what we call, looking back on it, modern times. Now, these are all words that we historians use to describe the past. If you'd been living, just pick a year, say, ah, oh, 1217. If you'd been living in the year 1217, 1217, um, that's, what, 500 years before Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the Castle Church store. If you'd been there in 1217 and somebody had punched you in the side and said, hey, you know, you're a medieval man. You would have thought he was crazy. You're a, you're a Middle Ages man. No, the Middle Ages for them was just the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That's the Middle Ages. We're all in the Middle Ages between the first coming of Jesus and his second advent, the second coming. 
So this is a term that we use to think back into this period of time and get some understanding or perspective. That's a word historians like to throw around a lot. Perspective on the past and where we are in relation to it. But the Reformation occurred at one of those ecatonic moments when the river and the ocean merged together. Something about these ecotones, wherever they are, they're always characterized by great diversity, fluidity. A lot's happening, a lot's going on, a lot of confusion. Uh, they're, they're characterized by struggle. Uh, they're characterized by moments of turbulence. But also, at the very same time, an ecotone is where new life is spawned, where new possibilities emerge, where things that had not ever been thought of that way before suddenly come to be thought of, maybe for the first time. Well, the Reformation was exactly that kind of period of time. The end of the Middle Ages, the beginning of modern times. And it was filled with confusion, with, with a fluid, changing, turbulent situation. So what were some of the bigger issues that people were dealing with in the Reformation? I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but I could, but I won't because I want to get on to the Reformers. But you have to know the context in which they were living. It was a time of social upheaval, of um, great uh, dislocation. We're, we're living in that kind of time now. In fact, in many ways, I think the world in which we live today is remarkably similar to the world in which Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Reformers lived. It's an, it, we're living in an ecotone too, aren't we? Uh, just look at displacement of peoples. Look at the whole big issue of immigration and what to do with these displaced peoples and refugees that are fleeing countries like Syria. But it's not the Middle East only. It's all over the world. That was sort of like it was in the Reformation. People moving around. Well, why are they moving around? Why are they being displaced in the time of the Reformation? It was the breakdown of the kind of social and economic system that had held sway for well more than a thousand years. The name for that was feudalism. Feudalism was a system where everybody had his place, usually on a, on a farm. Uh, and no matter if you were the lord of the manor or a peasant tilling the soil, you knew your place. And you weren't supposed to get out of that place. It was stationary. It was, it was stable. But now all that's changing because there's something new in the world that had not been there before. You know what it was? Cities. Cities emerged. Now, yes, I know there had been Rome and Athens in the ancient world and Jerusalem. But for a long, long time, there had been no really active, alive cities in the western world that started with the crusades as, as the crusaders went to the east they began to bring back spices and silks and sell them in the markets and before you know it you have a whole new economic system we call it capitalism it was beginning in this very time and that created lots of opportunity and it also created lots of difficulty for many many people with the rise of the cities you know what you have for the first time in the cities you have you have wide-scale poverty. Now, yes, people have been poor. Poor as dirt. And, and, you know, they had the dirt. That was, that was, that was how they lived, farming. But now you have hordes, swarms, crowds of poor people, sometimes wandering from city to city to city. That all was new. And the Reformation came into the scene just at the time this was beginning to be felt. You know what else was new? The nation state. In the Middle Ages, you had the Pope and the Emperor. These two great figures. The Emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, who was the temporal sovereign of everything in Christendom. And then you have the Pope, who not only was the head of the church, so it was taught, but also uh, had very important temporal responsibilities as well. And you see a little remnant of that even today. If you, if you go to the Vatican... In Italy, the Vatican is not a part of Italy. I said that, but it's not really true. The Vatican is located in Rome, next to Rome, but it's not a part of Rome. It's its own country. It has its own uh, police force. It has its own post office. It has its own passport. It's a country. That's all that's left today. 
of what used to be a vast temporal kingdom controlled by the Pope. You have these two, the Pope and the Emperor. But now in the time of the Reformation, you begin to have nation states. You begin to have states that come together and have their own king or queen. Like Francis I in France or Henry VIII, you've heard of him, in England. And this creates great um, political uh, instability. It was an age of anxiety. What do I mean by that? Paul Tillich was a theologian. He said that human life is characterized by three great anxieties. And I think myself that these are present in every age. It's not just the Reformation or modern times or ancient times. Wherever human beings have been human beings, you've had these three anxieties. We have them today all over us. The first one is the anxiety about death. We're going to die. And the realization that that is happening sometimes on a large scale as it did in the Middle Ages and the Reformation. This creates enormous anxiety. You see, this was part of Luther's problem in the thunderstorm. What if I died in the thunderstorm? How would I have been right with God? Death. And in, in the time of the Reformation, it was also an, accentuated by two things that were present. Famine and plague. Famine, people starving to death. The land is not yielding enough crops. Sometimes that's weather related. Sometimes it has to do with this rise of capitalism and the reallocation of resources in, 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 the, in society. So you have famine and you have plague. Plague, we would call it the, the pestilence. It, it, it sweeps away huge numbers of, of the human population. They call it, it was called the black death, the bubonic plague in the 14th century swept away one-third of the human population of Europe. Just think about that. What if one out of every three people you knew here in Birmingham died within a period of a few weeks, a few months of some unknown virulent disease? You know, we worry about that now when we get some kind of virus we don't know what to do with. Well, this actually happened on the eve of the Reformation, the Black Death, the plague. So there's the anxiety about death and how to face an uncertain future. Then there's the anxiety of guilt. Well, we talked enough about that last week with Martin Luther, right? How can I please God? How can I satisfy God? How can I assuage the guilt that is deep within my soul? And then finally, and th this brings us a little closer to our own age, there was another anxiety, somewhat new at the time of the Reformation. It was the anxiety about meaning, the meaning of life. And this was caused partly by some new inventions like the telescope. Now that was a wonderful thing. Galileo, Copernicus, they invented the telescope. And for the first time, you know, you could see stars and the planets. And we knew that, uh, we knew that there was a new way of understanding the universe. We call it the heliocentric way of understanding the universe. It's not the earth that's the center, but the sun that's the center of our solar system. For the first time, people could prove that. They could look through a telescope and they could see that. But you know what that means, don't you? Well, it means, look at earth. Look at us. We're just one of many, many celestial bodies. Planets, stars, constellations, galaxies whirling out there in outer space. And this created great anxiety for people. An anxiety about meaning. What is the meaning of life? Where is my place in the midst of of life. That's really all I want to say about the context, but I think you've got to get some feel for that to understand why Luther and his message of the gracious God who relieves our guilt and who gives us a kind of freedom that we could never have in and of ourselves, why this caught on, why this reached a message that people were ready and desperate to hear and to believe. Well, last week I talked about Luther. And uh, tonight I want to talk about some of the other reformers who followed in his wake. And I'm not going to say a lot about them because I want to leave a lot of time for discussion. But I want to, I want to give a brief word about Zwingli. Z-W-I-N-G-L-I, Huldreich Zwingli. He was the reformer of Zurich in Switzerland.
I want to say a little bit about Calvin, John Calvin. He was also in Switzerland, but in the other side of Switzerland. Not the German-speaking, but the French-speaking side of Switzerland. And then I want to say just a little bit about uh, the English Reformation in particular. William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English. And then just a brief word, though I could say a lot more if I had time, about the Anabaptists. They were different from all of the above. They had their own pattern, their own way. Now, if any of these names are new to you, uh, get my book, Theology of the Reformers. I don't have any copies, Jacob, but you, he, you can ask Jacob, and he can tell you how to get this book. Uh, this, this book actually is an old book, I mean, relatively speaking. Uh, it was originally published in 1988. That's the year Beeson Divinity School began, the year I moved to Birmingham. But it's been updated just a couple of years ago in a 25th anniversary edition. And I added a whole new chapter on William Tyndale and the English Reformation. So it'll tell you all this stuff I'm saying plus a lot, lot more. But I want to go back to Zwingli. Sometimes we think of the Reformation and we think of it in Luther-centric terms. I mean, Luther, you can't even begin to think about the Reformation without dealing with Luther. He was a volcano of a personality. And just kind of drew everybody into his orbit. He's bigger than life. And there would have been no reformation without Martin Luther. At least not the kind of reformation that happened. He was a catalyst for all of these streams of reform I'm going to be talking about tonight. But Luther was not the whole reformation. And it's really important that we see that what was happening was not just happening to one monk up in the northern part of Germany and Wittenberg... But it was also happening all over Europe. It was a European-wide phenomenon. And wherever the Reformation happened, it took some of the local flavor of the place, the geography where it was occurring. And one of the names was Zwingli, Huldreich Zwingli. Now, who was he? Well, he was the same age as Luther. He was born in the same year as Luther, born on January the 1st in 1493. And 1483, sorry. And he was brought up in a very different kind of way than Luther. Uh, he, he was never a monk. I mean, Luther in some ways was so shaped by the monastery. Both his religious quest to find a gracious God and all the monastic routine and the chanting of the Psalms. Luther was a monk through and through. Zwingli was not. Uh, Zwingli was what would have been called a parish priest. He was a priest in the Church of England, but not a monk. And he was assigned to a city church. And he had to care for the people there, going about the various routines of the city in the village of Glarus in Switzerland. He was shaped and influenced, I think more than any of the other mainline reformers, by Erasmus. You know that name? Desiderius Erasmus. Erasmus was from Holland. He was a scholar. He was one of the great, great scholars of his day. One of the things Erasmus did was to go back and recover the ancient Christian writings. His most important work was in 1516. It was the first ever Greek New Testament. Erasmus went back and found these Greek manuscripts and brought them together and edited them and produced in 1516 the first ever in, in history publication of the New Testament in Greek. Now, I tell you, that was a big deal. It still is today. If you're reading a Bible, if you own a Bible, if you study the Bible, you are reading or studying a Bible that is based on, in some, to some degree or other, Erasmus' Greek New Testament of 1516. Now, yes, we've learned a lot since then, but much of it is derived right out of Erasmus. What he wanted to do was recover the early church. His motto was Ad A.D. Fontes, F-O-N-T-E-S, Ad Fontes, back to the fount, back to the source, back to the original wellspring of Christian faith. And his Greek New Testament became so very important. Luther used it when he translated the New Testament into German in 1522. Tyndale used it when he produced the first ever English New Testament based on the Greek text in 1526. 
enormously important. Well, Zwingli grew up in the shadow of Erasmus. He was an Erasmian. He was a scholar. He was a humanist. Now, when I use that word, I've got to stop for a minute and explain what it means and doesn't mean. It does not mean what we often think of the word humanism today. A human-centric view of the world. We talk about modern secular humanism. That's what we're talking about. Where man, human beings are at the center of everything and judged of everything. That's not what it meant in the Reformation. What it meant back then is closer to what we mean today when we talk about the humanities. You know, when we talk about arts and sciences in a university, we talk about the study of language, we talk about literature. That's more what humanism meant in the day of Erasmus and Zwingli. And Zwingli was steeped in this humanist tradition, and this propelled him back to the study of the Bible. And I want to read you a quotation. This comes from 1522. At this point, Um, Zwingli had been a Protestant. He had accepted the Reformation message for about, oh, I'd say three years or so. And this is what he says, reflecting back on his own theological and spiritual pilgrimage. He said, when I was younger, I gave myself overmuch to human teaching like others of my day. And then, about six or seven years ago, I undertook to devote myself entirely to the Scriptures. I was always prevented by the philosophy and theology of the day. He's talking there about what was called scholasticism, the way they studied theology in terms of Aristotle's philosophy. But now he's cutting back to the scriptures, devoting himself entirely to the scriptures. And he says, eventually I came to the point where led by the word and spirit of God, I saw the need to set aside those things and to learn the doctrine of God direct from His own Word. That's a key, key phrase. To learn the doctrine of God direct from His own Word. Then I began to ask God for the light, and the Scriptures became far clearer to me. That's one of the basic principles of the whole Protestant Reformation. Not just Zwingli, but also Luther and Calvin and the other Reformers as well. God himself is the only true and faithful witness to himself. And if you really want to know something about God, where do you go to look? Well, you can learn something about God by looking at the world which he made. has his fingerprints all over it, right? Or even by looking inside at your soul, at your conscience. But if you really want to know what God says in its pure, unadulterated form... You want to go where God has told you about himself, where God has revealed himself to you. And that is in the Holy Scriptures. That is in the Bible. That is in the Word of God. And so uh, Zwingli's Reformation was anchored in this great principle of the Protestant Reformation. He came to this independently of Luther. And at first, he had great respect for Luther. I mean, Luther was the pioneer in so many ways. But eventually, they came to have very significant differences between them. And even to disagree openly and strongly with one another over some critical issues, like the Lord's Supper. Is Christ really present in the Lord's Supper? Or is it just a bare memorial symbol of what happened on Calvary when Jesus died for us? Those kind of debates, they clashed with one another. And that actually led to a dividing of the ways in the Reformation. I wish in some ways I could tell the story of the Reformation without talking about the divisions. And I think, you know, Christians today ought to really try to seek to find ways to get back to our unity. That which brings us together more than that which divides us. But in fact, the 16th century was a story of divisions. Not only between Catholics and Protestants, that was the big divide but also within the Reformation between Lutherans and Zwinglians. And later on, the Calvinists had their own flavor and the Anabaptists their own flavor. Well, in 1523, Zwingli was in, in, in the city of Zurich where I had the wonderful privilege of living for one year, a beautiful city on the Limmat River 
overlooking Lake Zurich and the Alps in the background. I can just see myself there now reading my books. I've never had a better place to live. Uh, I think heaven's going to be like Switzerland. Or maybe Switzerland's a little bit like heaven. But anyway, that's where Zwingli was from. He was born in Switzerland. He loved the Alps. And in, in the city of Zurich, he was called to be uh, the chief preacher of the city of, of the church called the Grossmünster, still standing today. And you enter into the Grossmünster and you see the pulpit there at the center of the church. And on January the 1st, 1519, Zwingli entered the pulpit of the Grossmünster church in Zurich and began something new, something that had not been done before. He opened his Bible to the Gospel of Matthew and began to preach a series of sermons, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, all the way through the New Testament. He started with Matthew, and after that he went to Acts, and then it was First and Second Timothy, and then it was Galatians, all the way through the New Testament. And when he finished the New Testament, he turned to the Old Testament. That was a revolution. And so it says on the doors to the Grossmünster today, when you enter into that sanctuary, the Reformation began here on January the 1st, 1519. Not Luther posting his theses on the castle church door. This is the Swiss version of the Reformation. And it begins with the preaching of the Scriptures, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Calvin will pick up, by the way, this same method of teaching the Bible. And it becomes a, a great way of Protestant preaching. Not all Protestants then or now follow it in such a literal way. But we owe to Zwingli the first person to do that. Well, it was, the year is 1523 now. He's been preaching for since 1519. What's that, four years? And uh, some things have changed. But the, the city itself is still not reformed. It's still under the... Uh, power and control and authority of the Catholic bishop. The bishop didn't live in Zurich. He lived up in Constance, Lake Constance, about 60 miles away. But he controlled Zurich. It was within his authority and jurisdiction. And so in 1523, they had a public debate. Not like the debate that's going to happen tonight, but something far more important. And that is how we live our lives under the authority of God. The Catholic bishop had his theologians and authorities there. And Zwingli represented the city council of Zurich. And they went back and forth all day long debating these issues of authority and scripture and worship. And at the end of the day, the whole city voted to accept and embrace the word of God. And Zurich became a Protestant city. Now, that's important for several reasons. First of all, it was a city. Luther was not at the heart of an urban reformation. I mean, Wittenberg's a little pig trail of a city. It's not much of a city even today. Just one street, basically. But Zurich's a, it's a, it was and is a thriving commercial city. We think of Switzerland with banking and all that stuff today. Well, that goes right back to the 16th century. Now the whole city has voted upon hearing the scriptures to embrace the teaching of the Reformation. So one of the things you find in Switzerland and in southern Germany, places like the city of Strasbourg, for example, is a Reformation that is based in the cities, not just in the territories, not just in the, the country, uh, but with the cities. And that's really important because it meant that these were centers of learning. That's where the schools were. That's where education was taking place. That's where so many of the social innovations, like caring for the poor of the city, what are, you, what are you going to do about that? That was a city problem because of all these hordes of people that were coming into the city and what to do about them. So the Reformation in Switzerland under Zwingli took place in the context of a city. One more point about Zwingli, then I'm going to move on to Calvin. The whole Swiss Reformation, and I would include Calvin and Zwingli together here, though there are big differences between those two as well. But the thing that bothered them the most, the thing they were most concerned about when they thought about the Roman Catholic Church was not what bothered Luther most. What bothered Luther most, as you may remember from last week, was the whole question of legalism, 
of guilt weighing down the soul and the conscience and how can I know that God is for me and not against me and how can I find a gracious God? How can I be right with God? That's what bothered Luther. What bothered Zwingli and Calvin was something else. It was the fear of idolatry. And so they did not want to give any undue prominence to any creaturely element. And so what they, they were much more thorough then in what we call iconoclasm. Breaking the images is what that word literally means. And it meant in the case of Zwingli, they, they went in this beautiful church that had gorgeous uh, paintings all over the walls. And he whitewashed them. Took, took away the images, even the, the visual images that you would see. What would he do with Hodges Chapel at Beeson Divinity School? I fear to think. But, and then something else he did. He went in and he took out all the musical instruments. Well, the main musical instrument they had was the organ, but they had others too. All musical instruments. Why? He thought these things, pictures and sounds made by uh, human-made instruments, that these would interfere with the pure preaching of the Word of God. There's no place for them in worship. So most Baptist churches historically have been very plain. We have not a lot of decorations, not a lot of symbols, not a lot of uh, things you can look at or be distracted by, but it's a meeting house where there is a central pulpit and somebody stands and opens the Bible and teaches and preaches the Bible, and that's a church. We owe that way of worshiping and that way of thinking about worship in part to Zwingli and Calvin and the fear of idolatry, of letting anything become an idol. And uh, we might want to talk about that a little bit because it's very different from Luther. If you go to a Lutheran church today, even a good, you know, Bible-teaching Lutheran church, and there are some of those, well, you'll, you'll, have, you'll, encounter, you'll encounter things that sort of look like Catholic trappings, not candles. They'll have candles. Uh, they'll have images. Uh, they'll have all kinds of things that you wouldn't find in a strict Baptist or a strict Presbyterian church either. Presbyterianism carries the same idea forward the fear of idolatry now let me move to Calvin the most important thing to say about Calvin and the Reformation is that he was a second generation reformer I mean Luther burst out of the gates he was the first, he was the pioneer well Zwingli was right there with him but in a different way Calvin was a full generation behind he was born in 1509 and he only embraced the Protestant Reformation in the early 1530s. We're not exactly sure when, but probably about 1531 or 32. So a lot of water was under the dam in the Reformation by 1532. That's when Calvin came along. A brilliant scholar like Zwingli, much influenced by humanistic studies, the study of the classics, the study of the ancient languages, Greek and Hebrew, and of course Latin was the language everybody spoke and wrote. And we're not sure exactly how he became a Protestant. He was brought up in a Catholic family. His father used to work for the Bishop of Noyon. That's his home city in France, about 40 miles north of Paris. He wanted Calvin to, to become a, a, a priest, a, a leader in the church. And he sent him off to study for that. But along the way, he changed his mind about his son. And he said he realized that the study of law was more likely to reward those who follow it than the study of theology. And so Calvin moved from being on the way to become a, a priest, and instead he became a lawyer. Eventually he earned a doctorate in civil law. That would serve him very well when he moved to Geneva and began to organize the city and so forth. But his training was legal training. It was classical studies. And somewhere along the way he began to evidently read Luther and moved by his message and became a, a was converted. He, talks, he says it this way, by a sudden conversion, God subdued my heart and made it teachable. That's a really telling quote from Calvin. By a sudden conversion. Now, we don't know what, the else he, what that means. How did it happen? Was it a bolt of lightning like, you know, Luther in the thunderstorm? Well, he never says. 
Was he alone? Was he with other people? Was it a public meeting? Was somebody teaching? Was he reading the, the Bible by himself? We don't know. But he says it was in a sudden way that God changed his heart and made him teachable. You know, that is a great way to talk about what it means to be a Protestant Christian, to be made teachable, to want to learn Christ and follow the teaching of Christ. There's more to it than study and learning, but you can't be a real disciple without study and learning. And that's one of the great things that Calvin did. And you see that in the tremendous uh, emphasis on education in the Reformed tradition. Schools, the importance of training young minds in the way of the faith, and even for ordination. Now, I was ordained in a Southern Baptist church, and I thought that gave me a pretty thorough examination. Uh, But I've seen some of the examinations from... uh, the Reformed tradition in history, and I don't think I could pass them, I can tell you that. They are thorough, and they want to be sure. You know, if we Baptists, we Southern Baptists, if you say you love Jesus and smile real sweet, we'll ordain you, we'll lay hands on you. Not so good Presbyterians. Now, there may be other Presbyterians that are just as bad or worse than we are. I don't know. But Calvin emphasized teaching and the importance of learning and education. Very important. Now, what are some of the main theological emphases of Calvin? Well, one was the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of the Bible as the central stable of Christian worship. Calvin came to Geneva in 1536. He didn't stay very long. Stayed The first time he was there, he stayed less than three years. He was expelled by the city council. They didn't like certain things he was teaching. He goes to Strasbourg. But things in Geneva go from bad to worse in his absence. And the city council begins to call and say, you ought to come back to Geneva. We want you to come back and undertake and finish the work of reformation you began. And Calvin's reluctant to do it, but finally he's persuaded. And so in 1541, he returns to Geneva, where he had been three years earlier. And he enters into the great pulpit of Saint-Pierre, still standing today. Go there and see it. And he goes into the pulpit, and the place is packed. Everybody's there, and everybody thinks that Calvin's going to get up there and preach, and I told you so sermon. You should never have expelled me. I told you this would happen, but he doesn't. You know what he does? He gets up there, and he opens his Bible to the very verse he had been preaching three years earlier and just resumes an exegetical study of the Scriptures. Not a word about the controversy. Not a word about the city council. Not just teaching the Bible. What was he saying? In that act, he was saying, the Reformation is not about Calvin. It's not about me. The Reformation is about the Word of God. This is what we must hear. This is what we must obey in life and in death. Well, I could say a lot more about Calvin. I want to say just a word or two about some of his main emphases. One was the whole question of God's providence and his sovereignty. This is one of the major emphases of Calvin, that God is sovereign over everything that happens in the world. He's the creator of the world. He made it out of nothing. And he is absolutely the sovereign Lord of time and eternity. One of the expressions of this that's very controversial in Calvin's theology is predestination. Some people don't like that word, but you know, it is in the Bible. And unless you're going to do like Thomas Jefferson, go through and take your knife and cut out all those things you don't like. That's what Thomas Jefferson did. You go to Monticello, you see his New Testament is full of holes. It's a holy Bible, but it's holes that he's cut out. You know, words like hell and judgment. I don't know if he cut out predestination or not, but some people do. But you know... This is something that's misunderstood. And a lot of people think this removes all human responsibility. Well, if God predestined it, why do I need to do anything? You ever heard that argument? Well, Calvin says that God chooses not only the ends, your salvation, your repentance, but also the means by which you are brought to repentance. That is, the preaching of the gospel, the sharing of the good news, the sending of preachers and missionaries. That's all a part of God's sovereign way of doing things, Calvin says. But it's clear that predestination has been greatly misunderstood and misused and abused by lots and lots of people. 
Here's a quotation from Calvin that I like very much that I think puts it in the right perspective. This is from his great institutes of the Christian religion, his masterpiece of Protestant theology. He said, We should not investigate what the Lord has left hidden in secret. Nor should we neglect what he has brought out into the open. So that we may not be convicted of excessive curiosity on the one hand. Or of excessive ingratitude on the other. That's a great quote. It's so balanced, isn't it? Be careful. You don't want to investigate what God has not fully, clearly, totally revealed to you. You have no business doing that. So that you don't become guilty at the end of your Bible study of curiosity. Excessive curiosity. That's bad. For Calvin, theology is done within the limits of revelation alone. So you don't want to investigate what God hasn't told you about. Like why are some elect and why are others not? And all this kind of, what are we going to look like in the resurrection? Your eyes going to be blue or green? Don't investigate what God has left hidden in secret. Not your business. You don't need to know that. If you needed to know, God would have told you. Don't investigate. You're guilty of curiosity. On the other hand, what God has told you about himself and about his ways of salvation in the world, about the gospel, you, you need to fully not neglect that unless you found yourself guilty of ingratitude to God. I think that's a great quotation on predestination. The, that's not the central point of Calvin. I think the central point of Calvin is union with Jesus Christ. It's, it's knowing Christ being found in Him, being redeemed by Him. It's a Christocentric faith that drives Calvin from first to last. Well, I want to go and say a little bit about the English Reformation and particularly about William Tyndale. When I, when I did this book, I chose one figure from each of the major traditions to kind of exemplify, represent that tradition. Well, Luther, that was easy. Luther, of course. Uh, I chose Zwingli and Calvin because they represent the two sides of Switzerland, the German and the French-speaking side of the Reformed tradition. And I chose a figure named Menno Simons, who's the head of the Mennonites, the headwaters of the Mennonite tradition, more the Anabaptist radical Reformation. And then for the English Reformation, who was I going to choose? I had a hard time. I thought about... What about Cranmer, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer? He's the author of the Book of Common Prayer. It's one of the most important resources to come from the whole Reformation. Very influential. And then I thought about Richard Hooker. He was under Queen Elizabeth and really set forth the laws of ecclesiastical polity and you know, why Episcopalians have bishops and all that stuff. He, he was a very important figure. I thought about William Perkins. He was a Puritan theologian, a great preacher. But I went back before all of these figures and I chose William Tyndale. You know why? Because everybody draws on Tyndale. Tyndale's great contribution to the English Reformation is the fact that he gave us our English Bible. He is the person most responsible under God for the fact that you can read the Bible in English today and hold it in your hands and study it in your home. William Tyndale gave his life... He was a martyr because he gave his life for the translation of the scriptures into his native English tongue. I don't have time to tell you his story, but it reads like a spy novel. He was always on the run. He never married. Of all the reformers I write about, he never married. He didn't have time to. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He was always on the run, always running away from somebody, trying to find him, trying to hide from his persecutors. In 1526, he translated the New Testament from Greek into English and began to send these sheets of the translated New Testament all the way back to England where they were opened and read and became a part of our, of our, of our religious faith and heritage. The King James Version of the Bible, which was published in 1611 that I grew up on, the King James Version of the Bible is 89.5%. They proved that by computer analysis. Tyndale's language. Tyndale's words. But when you read the preface to the King James Version of the Bible, 16, they never ever mention his name. Why? 
Well, he was an outlaw. He was, he was put to death as a rebel against the crown. But we owe our English Bible to William Tyndale, a person of enormous courage and a great scholar and a great thinker and preacher of the Holy Scriptures. Well, I, I mentioned the Anabaptists. I, I want to close by just saying a little word about them, and then we'll open it up, Jacob, for questions and comments. Who were the Anabaptists? They're called Anabaptists. Anna is just a prefix in Greek that means doing it all over again. Rebaptizers, really what it means. And they rejected infant baptism. And here we feel some affinity with the Anabaptists. Not on everything. And I, I think we would find lots of places where we disagree with the Anabaptists. They were radical pacifists, for example. Didn't even believe a, a Christian could be a, could be a policeman, much less a soldier. They had some things that most Baptists today wouldn't be comfortable with. But they did reject infant baptism. And they believed that baptism should be reserved for those who not only believed in Christ, believers' baptism, but also for those who had repented of their sins. We call it believers' baptism. But you know, really, we should also perhaps just as much call it repenters' baptism. And if you go to like the countries in the former Soviet Union where there are lots of Baptist, Baptistic Christians, that's what they're called, repenters. Have you, have you talked to the repenters today? They'll say that. Well, the Anabaptists, we owe a great deal to them because they were people of conviction. They were persecuted. They lived on the margins of society. And we share with them some common beliefs, including the belief that baptism is for those who have repented of their sins and placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Something else Baptists today share in common with the Anabaptists and that was the idea of a covenant. That a church is a covenanted community of baptized believers. A covenant is not just a contract. It is an organic uh, relationship. And we are covenanted to Jesus Christ, first of all. He is the Lord. We follow Him. But also to one another within the body of Christ. That's an, that's an Anabaptist ideal. And I think it's one of the things that's woven itself into the history of the Baptist movement. Uh, we maybe need to recover that some today. A lot of Baptists have gotten away from it. But that was a key element in the Anabaptist understanding of the church. They were persecuted. Many of them passed away and died. They were drowned to death. Some of them were burned at the stake. Horrible deaths. There were more Anabaptists killed in the 16th century for their faith than there were early Christian martyrs in the first four centuries of the church. It's true. By the thousands, they were put to death because they were seen to be a threat. Well, out of this ferment came an expression of Reformation believing, Reformation thinking, Reformation worshiping. I haven't even said very much about worship, but we could talk a lot about that. And a number of great historic documents that still inform our faith today. We Baptists have our own confessions of faith. We have our own catechisms. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, maybe the most famous Baptist preacher in history, published a Baptist catechism. So did John A. Broadus, the first uh, leader of uh, Southern Baptists in the 19th century. Well, one of the great documents from the Reformation itself is called the Heidelberg Catechism. It was published in 1563 in the city of Heidelberg, and so it's called after that place, the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a series of questions and answers. And so young people who are being discipled in the faith, they'd be asked these questions, and they would be taught to give these answers. I want to read the first question and the first answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? That's the question. And the answer that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me 
heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Well, I think that's one of the great expressions of the Christian faith that I've ever read in any age, in any era, and certainly from the time of the Reformation. That we belong, body and soul, not to ourselves, but in life and death, for time and eternity, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the heart of Reformation theology. Well, I'm going to stop here, Jacob, and let you come and direct our next session. We're going to have some time of Q&A. I'm going to take the privilege of having the microphone and asking the first question, Dr. George. Is that all right? I think I'll do that. Uh, I don't care if it's all right. I'm going to do it. Um, the, uh, you talked a bit about unity, and I would love to ask you specifically been in circles before both in Chicago and here where you don't have to push very far to get an anti-Catholic sentiment. Um, Talk to us a little bit about how we can promote unity within the greater body of Christ and ways we can uh, foster that and encourage that. Yeah that's a loaded question and Jacob Jacob asked it intentionally because he knows I have a lot of discussions with Catholics and I think uh, some of the old stereotypes that come from the time of the Reformation Uh, are things we need to re-examine in the light of realities today. I mean, uh, there's still big differences between Protestants and Catholics. Let's don't pretend that everything's been smoothed over and we're all just one big happy family and let's just go our way and be nice. That's a kind of ecumenism, a kind of togetherness, I think, that's dishonest. So there are big differences. I think the biggest difference is authority. We've not yet, I think, made much, if any, progress on the question of religious authority. But um, I also recognize that things are not the same today in the year 2016 as they were in 1516 or 1546. Things have changed in some significant ways within the Catholic Church and within the Protestant world, too. Uh, What has changed? Well, for one thing... Catholics now have the Bible. They can read the Bible. I speak at Catholic churches quite often, and I go in and there's a Bible study going on. People want to study the Bible. That would not have been the case in 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so that's a good thing, that Catholics are reading the Bible. We ought to celebrate that. That's how the Reformation came about, a Catholic monk reading the Bible. So if God did it then, maybe he can do it again. So I think uh, we ought to find ways in which we can find those areas in which we have deep common roots, and those roots are biblical roots. Uh, Common life in Jesus Christ. And from there we can enter into what I've tried to do in some of my work is to have open, open, honest, and frank discussions, dialogue. I don't do debates, but I do dialogues with Catholics and with others with whom I have open disagreements And in those discussions, I've always found it best not to sweep under the rug the differences, but to put them right up front and explore them. Why do you believe what you believe? What's the basis of it? And you'll come both to areas of commonality and areas of disagreement. So I think that's a lot better. Now, I'll I'll say one more thing in answer to your question. I was born in the year 1950. Yeah. Not 5-0. I'm that old. Well... Around the year 1950, there were two great opponents of evangelical Christianity in this country. One was Catholicism, which was strong, it was monolithic, it was before Vatican II, unreformed, the Bible was not available. And the other, if you can say, enemy or opponent of evangelical Christianity around the time I was born was, was what we call mainline Protestantism, liberal mainline Protestantism. It was very strong. It was very powerful. You couldn't have a radio broadcast in America uh, if you were an evangelical Christian. The only exception was uh, Charles Fuller, the old-fashioned gospel hour, and he kind of sneaked in under the wire. Well, today, both of those realities have changed. We still have opponents, if you want to use the word enemy, spiritual enemies, It's not Catholicism anymore, and neither is it Protestantism. Protestantism, mainline liberal Protestantism, is in serious trouble. Uh, If it's not uh, already in the mortuary, it's in the emergency room. 
uh, it's declining. It's dying if it's not dead. Uh, it doesn't have enough wherewithal to be the kind of force it once was, culturally, socially. And Catholicism is in flux. It's also changing. And as I was saying, there are all these renewal movements and, and opportunities for change, and especially among younger Catholics. So I, I find we have a great opportunity now. You must have sensed this in Chicago. Uh, to reach out to people who may be Catholics, but with whom we share much more in common than we might mainline Protestants. So it's a different world in which we're living today, and I think it calls for a different kind of response. Now, is that Simi answering your good question? Absolutely. Thank you very much. That's a great question. Uh, Any questions? We're going to take plenty of time with questions today, so uh, write them down and we'll get uh, as many as we possibly can. Next question. Dr. George, all of these reformers that you talk about, were they all reforming from the Catholic Church? Or was there a steady stream of believers that existed from the time of Christ not affiliated with Rome? Yeah. There were, we might call them the underground church in the late Middle Ages. We think of groups like the Waldensians, for example. That'd be a good example of how you describe these these believers that uh, really uh, were not a part of the Catholic Church in the time of the Reformation. They had been, but they'd been expelled centuries before. And these little believers were underground. They were persecuted. And so they couldn't meet openly. They didn't have church buildings, but they would meet in caves and so forth. And one of the things that happened with the Waldensians in 1534 is that movement merged with the Calvinist movement, with the Protestant Reformation, and became a part of it. There were other groups. Uh, For example, in England you have the Lollards, who in some ways translated the Bible not from Greek but from Latin and passed it around page by page, underground, meeting in barns and the hulls of ships out in the woods. So they wouldn't be found out. In per- there were some groups like this. But I think they were for the most part very suppressed. They were not culturally uh, very uh, effective because they didn't have an opportunity to publish, to, to write, and to call people to faith. They did exist. And some of them later merged with the various reforming groups. Yeah. Next question. Here's a question. I'm coming, Elizabeth. I'm coming. So I know someone that's um, Orthodox. Say again. I know I have a friend who's Orthodox. Yes, capital O, Orthodox, right. What is their deal? How do they? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. You know, there there are three major expressions of Christianity, Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox, capital O. And another name for Orthodox Christianity is Eastern, capital E, Christianity. And it's referring to a kind of movement of Christians that never really were a part of the Roman Catholic Church. They survived in the East from the early days of the church. They traced their own lineage right back to Jesus and the apostles, not through the Pope, not through the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church, but in their own, their own way. In some ways, they're similar to Roman Catholics in their worship, their lovely icons and so forth, their veneration of the Virgin Mary. They're similar to Roman Catholics in a lot of ways, but the main difference has to do with the Pope. They agree with us. We don't believe the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth with jurisdictional authority over all the churches in the world. They reject that idea too. And so even though Catholics and Orthodox believers have come closer and closer and closer, they still do not share the common communion together because of this major difference over authority again. So in some ways, in some ways, not always, but in some ways, Protestant Christians are closer to Orthodox Christians than we might be to Roman Catholics. Even though they're in the East and they have their own way of doing things, it's very foreign to a lot of people who are brought up in the West. But uh, I've had some discussion and dialogue with Orthodox believers, wonderful believers, uh, and I find some of it very difficult. 
Since your industry is history, I'm going to ask a question that takes us out of that. If you could use, if you could predict what is going to be facing the church in the next 25 years, if not the next 100 years, what uh, would history tell us that the battles and the conversations, dialogues, church is going to face in the future? Yeah. Well, as, as you say, I'm, I'm a historian, not a prophet. So I don't really know what, where we're going in, in history and in life. I have some concerns, I think. I'll speak to those. I think there are always two, uh, I'll call them poles in the history of Christianity. From the early church, from the New Testament right down to the present. Wherever you look, you'll find these two poles present in different ways. I will call them identity on the one hand and adaptability on the other. And I think we can go to extremes in either way. If we are only concerned with identity, with who we are and our beliefs and our little group, we'll become a holy huddle. We won't have any sense of mission in the world. We'll be totally cut off and segregated. And that's happened again and again and again in church. If, on the other hand, if all we focus on is adaptability, eventually we'll lose the gospel. That's what happened to liberalism. Now, I think we still face both of those issues, but I think the one we face more urgently is the pole of adaptability in our present moment of acculturation, of giving in to the culture, of giving in to things that do not honor either God or the Bible or the Christian heritage. We're confronted with that all the time. And we could probably all give examples of these things we see. So I think that's a big issue that's going to continue going forward into the future. How we can be a faithful church in an increasingly secularized, godless society, I think is a big issue we're all going to have to think and pray and work about. Longer than you say, 20, 30, 50 years. And I wish I could be more optimistic. I'm not. I, when I am opt, if I want to be optimistic about Christian faith and its, its vibrancy and its growth and its dynamism, I look south of the equator. I look to Africa. I look to some places in Latin America. I look to some places in Asia. There's a kind of Christianity that isn't as far decadent as ours in the West is. Now, if you want to look at something that's worse than we are, culturally, socially, then go to Canada. It's worse there. Or go to Western Europe and look at the great Christian Protestant churches that used to be filled to overflowing. And now, you know, maybe are museums or something worse. So we're somewhere in between that situation and where uh, we might be. Thank you. Other questions? Yes. Early, you alluded to ecotonic uh, situations, yeah. and I yeah. was wondering, uh, you alluded to the fact that we might be living in an ecotonic yeah. age or season, and I was wondering uh, what we can look back to from the Reformation, uh, who who were those, the Reformers were also living in that kind of a season. What can we look back to and kind of recover uh, that might be helpful for us in the same kind of a, yeah. an age? What the reformers were about was calling, you know, it was back to the future. I mean, you know, it was not innovation. They did not want to start a brand new church from scratch. They wanted to reform, reform, reformation, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Not the Roman Catholic church, but the church that Jesus had founded. The church of the Bible, the church of the creeds, the church of the scriptures. So I think what I would cite from the reformation that still is relevant today is that back to the future momentum where um, the way forward is not to invent something all over brand new from scratch, but to recover that which we have lost, which is full of life and dynamism and vibrancy, the faith once delivered to the saints, a faith that people will be willing to die for. You know, that's, that's what I think we want to pitch to young people today. That's the faith that, you know, is going to make a difference. And I, I, that, that also gives me encouragement when I talk to young people. Not only our students, you know, at Beeson and other places, but where I travel, I see young, young Christians that, you know, that's what they want. That's what they're signed up for. Not a kind of acculturated Christianity that's lost its steam. 
So I think that's the role of pastors, teachers, discipleship leaders, you. (laughs) Anybody who has enough Christianity, you'd come to church on Wednesday night, you're in that group. Uh, You know, we've got to encourage other people to to sense that reality that really is is life-changing, transformative. Any other final questions? Dr. George, tell us about the trip before we yeah, break Yeah, I want to say a word about books. it. Last week, some of you signed up to get an uh, email uh, application. It's on its way. If you didn't sign up, you can do so on this table, right, Jacob? They have a, a pad of paper and a pen there. Here's a brochure. I brought two if you want to take a look at it. I don't have too many, but you can sort of see where we're going. June 26th to July 5th, 2017. It's a 10-day Reformation tour. And if you want to go to Rome, in addition to that, it's a little bit more, but you don't have to do that. It's complete from Wittenberg to Geneva. So we'll cover all these people we talked about today. And we invite you to come. It's going to be led by my, my friend David Dockery, myself, and another great scholar of the Reformation, a man named Scott Manich. We'll have a good time. We'd love for you to go with us if you can and want to. And I'll go ahead and speak for Jeremy Grime. If you go on that trip, he's going to give you at least $5 scholarship to make it over there. <laughs> Very generous of Jeremy. I can speak for him. I haven't even asked him, but $5 if you go. Uh, at this time, we're going to break up into small groups at tables or circle up over here. We're going to ask these questions. Question number 3, 13, 16, and 19. Uh, go ahead. If you have a favorite question that you want to ask, start there. You don't have to go in that order. In about 10 minutes, we're going to close with a corporate prayer. All right. Gather together. All right, friends, let's gather back together. We're going to close in prayer with a corporate prayer uh, that will be up on the, script, on the uh, screens. So if you'll stand with me, we will close in prayer together. Let us pray. God, our Heavenly Father, maker of heaven and earth, we praise you for being a God of community and fellowship. Thank you that you have called us out to be members of your church. As your church may be be the body of Christ to a broken and hurting world, may we be a place of comfort and help. May we be a house of prayer. May we be to world. May we be united with one another to proclaim the gospel. And may we be the bride of Christ anxiously awaiting her groom. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you all for being here tonight. Again, there's no uh, lenses next week. We will be at Carnival, so come volunteer at Carnival. And the week after that, uh, Dr. Wes Smolin's going to lead us in a conversation about church and state. So go home, watch the debate tonight. Write down all your questions. Dr. Wes Smolin will answer them all. Great? Sound good? Have a great night.